Welcome to the Healthy Compulsive Project podcast, where you can take a deep dive to explore the pitfalls and potential of the obsessive compulsive personality, offering hope and help for perfectionists, workaholics, micromanagers, type A personality, and control freaks. Hello, everyone. This is Gary Trosclair, psychotherapist, Jungian analyst, and author of the Healthy Compulsive book, blog, and podcast. Today's episode is about work. First, I explore the difference between work engagement, when you work a lot and you really love it, and work addiction, where you work a lot and you don't enjoy it but can't stop it either. Then, in a second article, I talk about what can eventually happen when you work a lot and it's not going well, that is, burnout. The psychological benefits of work can be great, especially the sense of mastery we sometimes get. But if your motivation is avoidance, and if you neglect yourself and your relationships, it can cause serious problems. This is episode 27 of the Healthy Compulsive Project podcast. Work engaged, work addicted, and work burned out. I lived next to the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory on the North Shore of Long Island for a year. The lab, as it's known, is home to Jim Watson, co-discoverer of the structure of human DNA, and many other dedicated and successful scientists. I was fortunate to meet a number of them, and they come to mind when I think about what work addiction is and is not. They were passionate about science, and they worked tirelessly. One of them wrote a book called We Can Sleep Tomorrow, which tells us a lot about how they operate. It was not unusual for them to work through the night, and they didn't always sleep the next day. Sometimes this meant neglecting their families. It usually meant neglecting their own self-care. Not a lot of life-work balance happening there. But would you say these guys were addicted to work? I can't generalize about whether they had work addiction or whether they were just deeply engaged in their pursuit of science. Nor can I speak of individual cases because I didn't get to know them well enough. But I do think that such distinctions are determined largely by what's motivating the urge to work beyond what's expected. Are we moving towards something or away from something? The idea that you can become addicted to a behavior has become accepted by researchers. Gambling addictions, exercise addictions, and internet addictions are pretty well established as behavioral addictions or, as they're also known, process addictions. By the way, there are lots of citations of the research in the blog. If you want to see them, that's thehealthycompulsive.com. Here are some indications that you may be addicted to a behavior. Salience. The activity becomes the most important thing in your life. Mood modification. Doing the activity makes you feel better at first. Tolerance. You need to spend more time doing the activity to get the high. Withdrawal symptoms. When not doing the activity, you feel uncomfortable. Conflict. A battle evolves within yourself or with people around you about how much time you spend in the activity. Relapse. You try to stop the activity but fail. Now, I want you to notice two themes here. One is that the avoidance of bad feelings comes to be, or always has been, the motivation for the addictive activity. And two, Activity that felt good at first becomes necessary simply to keep from feeling bad. Then you may feel like Sisyphus, the Greek king of Corinth, who is cursed by the gods to keep pushing a rock up a hill 
only to have it fall down again each day. In short, they punished him for trying to act like an immortal when he was really just a mortal. This sort of hubris, a denial of human limitations, can lead us to work addiction. And the image of rolling that rock up the hill every day is a good one for what it feels like to be addicted to work. He didn't want to keep rolling that rock up the hill. He had to. And that's work addiction. The research regarding work addiction specifically is still emerging. It's not the kind of calamitous problem that has foundations clamoring to fund it. But while researchers disagree about just what constitutes work addiction, many conclude that work can become destructively addictive. If you're curious about whether you have work addiction, take this test designed by Mark Griffiths at Nottingham Trenton University in Nottingham, the Bergen Work Addiction Scale, which I've used by permission here. To see whether you might have a work addiction, ask yourself whether you do the following, one, never, two, rarely, three, sometimes, four, often, five, always. One, you think of how you can free up more time to work. Two, you spend much more time working than initially intended. Three, you work in order to reduce feelings of guilt, anxiety, helplessness, and depression. Four, you've been told by others to cut down a work without listening to them. Five, you become stressed if you're prohibited from working. Six, you deprioritize hobbies, leisure activities, and exercise because of your work. Seven, you work so much that it has negatively influenced your health. If you responded often or always on at least four of the seven items, it indicates that you might have a work addiction. Notice in particular number three from this self-test, working in order to reduce guilt, anxiety, helplessness, and depression. That's moving away from a feeling rather than moving toward it. Let's compare these motivations in two different people to see how they actually look. John works long hours at his job as an attorney. He loves the challenge his career presents. He likes solving problems and catching mistakes when he edits documents. He enjoys advising his clients and delivering the finished product to them. When he finishes work, he goes bike riding, spends time with his wife, or reads. Whether he's working or playing, he's moving toward what he enjoys and what's good for him. On the other hand, Frank is also an attorney and works about as many hours as John. While he's not crazy about the work, it sure beats the alternative. When he isn't working, he is restless, anxious, empty, and depressed. Insecure, really. He has a gnawing feeling that there's something he should be taking care of and isn't. He was a star in law school, but never really believed what they said about him. He still fears he'll be found out to be a fraud. He dreams of being chased. He drinks a lot to let go and watches television to divert himself when he can't work. He likes the idea of vacation, but usually feels miserable once he gets there. He's increasingly isolated. He's always moving away from uncomfortable feelings, not toward the things he enjoys or values. John and Frank serve as good examples of the difference between work engagement and work addiction, terms coined by psychology researcher Wilmar Schaffeli at the University of Leuven in Belgium. Schaffeli says that work engagement is characterized by a positive, fulfilling, work-related state of mind, including vigor, 
dedication, and absorption. Work addiction is characterized by a need to work that's so exaggerated it endangers health, reduces happiness, and deteriorates interpersonal relations and social functioning. John is work engaged. Frank is work addicted. If you are motivated by the fulfillment of work, it's more of a desire and less of a need. You're less likely, then, to neglect your well-being or your relationships. If you feel the need to avoid feelings of insufficiency, that pressure is more likely to override your motivation to take care of yourself and nurture your relationships. Whether your work engaged or work addicted is determined not just by the amount of time you spend working, but also by your motivation for working. Clearly, even with the best motivation for work, spending all of our time working is not healthy. And our motivations are never pure. But if too much of the motivation is to avoid feelings of insecurity or to avoid disapproval from others, it can lead to desperate overworking and a poor work-life balance. Some people are compelled to work because they feel passionate about it and find it rewarding. Others who have become work-addicted were originally motivated by positive feelings, moving toward the good feelings of mastery that come with achievement. But they began using work to alleviate feelings of insecurity, using work to move away from those bad feelings rather than toward the good feelings. This becomes a deeply entrenched habit, and because it really doesn't solve the problem, it can actually make us feel worse. With reflection, attunement to the body, and careful attention to the feelings that drive us, we can become aware of our motivations and make more conscious decisions. With commitment and intention, we can return to our original motivations, the deep, compelling urges that originally inspired us to work hard, and ask whether those are still being honored. And here is the second article on work. Burnout. What happens when you ignore messages from your unconscious? People with obsessive-compulsive personality and obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, OCPD, are driven to be as productive and perfect as possible. There are good aspects to this, but both the amount of work that compulsives do and how they approach work can become self-destructive. When this happens, something inside may go on strike to try to self-correct. Body and soul try to slow things down when they see danger ahead. But if the driven part insists on slogging forward with more work, the result is the painful standoff known as burnout. Carl Jung, the early 20th century Swiss psychiatrist, believed that human psychology operates as a self-balancing system. When one part takes control and goes too far in one direction, another part of the system will try to compensate and push the individual in the other direction. Usually, it works reasonably well, but nature isn't perfect and sometimes the system gets stuck. This often happens to those with OCPD. So what does burnout look like? Here are some characteristics of burnout. Memory and concentration difficulties. Exhaustion and physical complaints. Anxiety. Irritability and anger. Depressed mood cynicism, indifference, and self-attack, impatience with others, and a desire to isolate, and finally, a need to be busy and difficulty resting. 
In most situations, we get the message that something is off and we change how we're living. But this particular combination of problems makes it hard to change. We'll get to that. But first, let's see how it gets to this point. What makes burnout worse for compulsives? Here are some characteristics of compulsives that make them especially vulnerable to burnout. The need for control. If you need to control the process too much, it can feel like you're beating your head against the wall. Everything feels harder. This hits compulsives where they feel it the most. Need for validation. It's very human to want to be appreciated for what you do, but if you need to get it from everyone or even just certain people, and you don't get it, work will feel exhausting. Compulsives feel a deep need for respect, and respect gives them energy. But when the diligence they put into the work is unrecognized, they may become depleted. Need for efficiency. Most compulsives prize efficiency, and when interpersonal conflicts get in the way of production, it lowers their morale. Unrealistic goals. If you keep planning to solve 50 problems and you only get to 15 of them, you might find it discouraging or even depressing. You may fear a loss of status if you don't succeed at your goals. Too much emphasis on work. All of these problems are magnified when the compulsive invest primarily in their work life at the expense of self-care, relationships, and leisure. There's little to balance or dilute work problems when those are the main focus of your life. As one subject in a research study said, I don't see people, but prospective customers. I don't even know who they are. I don't remember them. They've been objects for me for some time now. Loss of connection with your inner life. Unhealthy compulsives lose track of what's most important to them, and in particular with their original motivations. Any message from inside that would help to slow down or heroically silenced. Even when you do get the message that you need to stop working so hard, two tendencies often make it difficult. One is the neurochemical addiction to work. Number two, the need to prove your value with work. Together, they're almost unstoppable. They can override any message from the unconscious that you're out of balance. You might be tired of working, but you can't stop. You crave the gratification of crossing things off a list, but to test what your work requires of you. You feel worse and worse, but the only way you know to try to feel better is to get more work done. A study published in the European Journal of Economics and Business Studies concluded that work addiction often leads to burnout. As one woman in the study said, I have to keep doing it. I don't know why, but I have to. If I'm not working, I'm not there. I'm not alive. Some people become burned out because they're forced by circumstances to work excessively, not because they like crossing things off a list. In this post, I'm primarily addressing work burnout, which begins with personal inclination, such as compulsive personality traits, rather than circumstances. But in many cases, these overlap. Some become addicted to work over time due to circumstances, and the situation aggravates an inclination that was dormant before. Work can be just as addictive as substances for some people. While we don't have solid research to back this up yet, there are reasons to believe that compulsives get a neurochemical reward for crossing things off their lists. 
For some people, a few hits of endorphins for being productive makes them want more. So, work addiction at its most advanced stage puts you on the road to burnout. And beware, denial is the favorite defense mechanism of people who are addicted. The problem becomes even more intractable if you feel that you need to prove yourself with productivity. It may be such a deeply ingrained part of your psychological strategy that it's scary to stop. Many compulsives enlist their natural determination to be productive and meticulous to show themselves and others that they're worthy of respect. Solutions, the obvious and not so obvious. The solutions might seem obvious. You've heard them a million times. Achieve work-life balance, yada, yada, yada. But it's more complicated than just doing other things and working less. True, you will need to put meaningful activities in place of your addiction to work. And you will need to recognize and acknowledge that how you work is problematic and that you've developed a work addiction that's led to burnout. As with any addiction, you will go through withdrawal when you try to change it. It won't feel good, and you may be tempted to give in to your addiction before you get to the other side. Remember, though, as with any addiction, once you get over the worst of the withdrawal, you will feel better. To maintain sobriety and heal from burnout, you'll also need to face the deeper causes that lead you down that road. Otherwise, you'll continue to get pulled off a healthier track. Here are four questions that will help you get moving in the right direction. What might your unconscious be protesting about in its rebellion against work? What are you trying to prove by working so hard? Three, what feelings, situations, or relationships are you trying to avoid by working so hard? And fourth, what did you originally want to accomplish when you began working on this project? I'm going to end this episode with a poem by Hafiz, the 14th century Sufi poet who gave us some advice on determining when we're off course. This is an excerpt from his poem, Someone Untied Your Camel, rendered in English by Daniel Landinsky. Hafiz sets a very high bar here, but it might just motivate you to slow down and listen to what your unconscious has to say to you. Is your caravan lost? It is if you no longer weep from gratitude or happiness, or weep from being cut deep with the awareness of the extraordinary beauty that emanates from the most simple act and common object. My dear, is your caravan lost? It is if you can no longer be kind to yourself and loving to those who must live with the sometimes difficult task of loving you. You can find transcripts of this podcast with links to research sources and lots more at the Healthy Compulsive blog, www.thehealthycompulsive.com. If you'd like to subscribe to the Healthy Compulsive podcast, hit that subscribe button. And for a thorough guide to cultivating the positive potential of the compulsive personality, find my book on Amazon, The Healthy Compulsive. Healing Obsessive Compulsive Personality Disorder and Taking the Wheel of the Driven Personality. And if you find any of these helpful, let others know by leaving a review. Till next time, enjoy the drive.